Hello, everybody. This is Andrew Gomison. I am privileged, as always, to be your host for the Speaking for Him podcast. want to welcome you back to the second part of the Speaking for Him Christmas celebration. If you were listening last week, you know that I share with you numbers 6 to 10 on my list of 10 of my favorite Christmas songs of all time. Now, I said at the outset of this project that it was very difficult to whittle it down to 10, and so I had uh, some numbers on my list, but then I also had some honorable mentions, and the same will be true today. I'm looking forward to jumping into that with you today, but first I want to talk to you about what is going on. The first story that I want to mention is a surprising, or perhaps not so surprising if you've been following the pro-life movement, decision by the FDA. The FDA is allowing the so-called abortion pill to be delivered by mail now. It lifts a restriction that required providers to dispense the drug in person to women. The move comes as the Supreme Court appears poised to deliver a blow to federal abortion rights and leave regulations up to the states. So what does this mean? Let's bring in ABC's senior national policy reporter, Ann Flaherty, who's joining us live for more. So, Ann, uh, the Biden administration decided to go ahead and say this is now going to be uh, able to be obtained by women through the mail. How big a deal is that? Well, I think it's huge. I think it opens up a whole new frontier in the abortion debate. So this is the drug charity uh, Mifepristone that it blocks the hormones that a woman needs to support a pregnancy. It's taken within 10 weeks. And up until recently, you could go into, you had to go into a hospital or a clinic and physically pick up that pill. Um, now, in 19 states, they do require you by state law that a physician has to be present when you take this drug. Um, the FDA decision does nothing to override those state laws. And those are women mostly in the South, so they will not have access to this. Mm-hmm. But for the rest of the country, uh, women are going to be able to go into um, a pharmacy, do a telehealth appointment, and get it mailed to them. It, it makes it significantly easier for women, particularly in rural areas of this country, uh, or women who simply don't have the time or the resources to get to a clinic, uh, they can get this through the mail now. And, and the argument of abortion rights advocates is this, uh, this uh, protects that constitutional right still that women have to choose to have an abortion. Opponents say that there are safety issues here. That's why those states, as you point out, require women take the pill in front of a doctor. Uh, w- what are the risks here? Um, well, you know, every medication has risk. This has been on the market for 20 years now. The FDA says this is extraordinarily safe and it's very, very effective. Um, but certainly there are risks. For example, if you have an ectopic pregnancy, if you have certain medical conditions, uh, they, they still want you to be screened by a certified health provider before you get access to this drug. Um, so this is certainly not something that is being deregulated entirely. They haven't moved, removed all the restrictions on this. Um, um, it, it's just going to be easier to get it, to take it um, in a private way. And, and it, it, we know that the Supreme Court is looking at the whole issue of woman's right to choose abortion under Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey. And listening to those arguments, it does not look good for the future of Roe versus Wade and the right to choose. You know, what potential impact on this decision by the FDA to provide uh, this so-called abortion pill to women through the mail, what could uh, a Supreme Court decision have uh, on that. 
Uh, well, certainly it would allow these states to criminalize these pills because these pills would uh, abort an early pregnancy. Um, and, and this is why I say it's a new frontier, because I think that w- with this decision by the FDA, the FDA is not, um, you know, they're not going to pass policy or laws. They're going to say what is safe and what can be done. So now the move, it really goes into these states. And I think you're going to start to see uh, certain states try to pass laws or, or try to make it easier or tougher for women to get access to this pill. Well, you know, one of the questions that we have is in a place like Texas, They've already said that this pill cannot be administered to any woman in Texas uh, after seven weeks. So, but can a woman go on, do a telehealth appointment with a doctor in California, for example, and give them a California address and have it delivered there? It becomes very, very difficult to try to police this and enforce this. Um, there's even an, uh, a charity that's out of, um, or an organization that's out of Europe that says that they will send these pills to women. Now, the FDA is very clear they don't want women going online to buy medication. They don't think it's safe. Um, but I think that's that's where we're headed, is some women will look to circumvent these state laws if they try to criminalize these pills. Okay, first of all, I'd like to point out in this story that there is some very contradictory things that were said. And one of them was the fact that we're not deregulating this entirely, that there's still requirements for having these pills put in the mail for certain people, which may or may not be true. But here's the thing that bothers me is that we say that we need to make this easier, we say that it needs to be more accessible, and we say that this will accomplish that, and then we say, in the same breath, or in the next breath, that this doesn't circumvent state laws, and that we don't want you going online to get the pills from a random online sales boutique in Europe. And my question is, how are we going to regulate this? Even in this news story, the lady that's speaking about this issue says, this is going to be very hard to regulate. I am totally 100% against abortion. So I am totally 100% against the abortion pill. But even if you were in some way, shape, or form to justify the need for this pill, I would think that you would want it to be medically regulated well. This is something that, as a state of Michigan, we dealt with when it came to abortion clinics several years ago because we realized that abortion clinics were among the least regulated parts of the medical establishment in the state. And so uh, we put into legislative action uh, some bills that would say if you're going to pass yourself off as a medical center, which abortion providers do and they call themselves health care, then you have to meet uh, certain minimum health care standards. And that caused several abortion clinics to close down. I would think that even the pro-abortion side would want their distribution of this pill to pass medical muster. And when the news anchor in this story 
ask the question, what are the risks? The medical expert just gave the pat answer. Well, there's medical risks for every drug and kind of skirted what the actual medical risks are. And if you've seen the movie Unplanned or read the book Unplanned, both about Abby Johnson, you will see a very graphic depiction of what she went through when she did her RU486 pill abortion. And it wasn't just simple pain. It wasn't just period cramps. It was agony. And there are serious risks, and they need to be discussed. And putting this in the mail will make it even easier for fraud to happen. What do I mean by that? When you go into an abortion clinic, one of the first things they do is confirm that you're pregnant, and the second thing they do is confirm how far along you are. So they can make a recommendation about the type of abortion that you should get for your situation. If you are not going in person to have those questions asked and answered and actually talking to a medical professional, then it is conceivably possible for someone who is not even pregnant to be given this pill. And it is conceivably possible for complications to arise if the age of the unborn child is not known at the time that this medicine is administered. So, again, I have a passion for pro-life issues, but I grieve for the fact that this makes the pro-life movement even more important and in some ways harder to manage. And I saw something recently that I just want to say a quick word about, and that is we often pass around these memes or these stories about how what does it mean to be really pro-life and are pro-lifers whole life pro-life? In other words, do you care about the baby after it comes out of the womb? They often make blanket statements like, hey, they don't care about kids in foster care or they don't care about this group of people. And I know there is some instance where that is the case, where we we do minimize the struggles of people that are already born and we need to do better in some areas. But as I said in response to the last story along these lines that I saw, the murder of unborn children is still murder. It doesn't matter what else is wrong. You can't use another moral wrong to justify abortion. And it grieves me that so many people do. The next story that I want to talk to you about is another attack on our military. Welcome back. Well, the Defense Department is facing a federal lawsuit after it blocked Bible passages from being printed on dog tags with military trademarks. Faith-based group Shields of Strength was served a cease and desist order for printing tags like the ones you see on your screen right now because the Department of Defense claims it violates department policies. The company's owner, Kenny Vaughn, joins us now alongside Mike Berry from the First Liberty Institute. Thank you both for being here. Uh, Kenny, before I go to you, I, w- I want to get the legal side of this right. So, Mike, the, the, 
Shields of Strength was able to do this for 20 years. Department of Defense knew about it. They were fine with it. Why did that change? Well, thanks, Pete. Yeah. uh, Why did it change? Because of one complaint. You know, if China fires a a hypersonic weapon around the globe or North Korea threatens a nuclear weapon, uh, that's not what causes our Department of Defense to, to worry. It's when somebody says, hey, there's a Bible verse on a dog tag. That's what causes our Pentagon to shake in their boots and raise the white flag of surrender. It's absolutely ridiculous. Unbelievable. Kenny, just overall, I mean, your reaction to the fact that you've been doing this, uh, you know, service members appreciate it, rightfully so. And now the Defense Department saying stop. Yeah, I'm just going to tell you exactly what happened. So uh, 15 years of my life, I battled fear in a big way. I was an athlete. My girlfriend, now wife of 25 years, wrote scriptures on my equipment. One piece of God's word set me free from that. And I wanted a daily reminder, so I started putting them on dog tags, jewelry, anything I could. Mm -hmm. I wore them. And now we're in Afghanistan. We're in Iraq, and our soldiers are battling fear, and I know it, and we're wishing we could do something. The phone rings one day, and somebody says, hey, Kenny, it's the armies on the phone. I'm like, man, what did I do? (laughs) Get on there, and and it's a, it's a, a chaplain calling me from the battlefield. And he says, hey, you know, uh, some of our guys got these doll tags and they got Joshua 1-9 on them. And we're wanting to know if we could get some more. I got $500. How many can I get? And so I'm just like, are you kidding me? How, how many How many soldiers are with you? 10,000 in my division. So sorry, you can get 10,000. You can keep your $500. And so that's how it got started. Literally every one we made, we made because they called us and asked us to do it. Two million of them, we donated the vast majority of them because they didn't have funding or couldn't get funding. Never a single complaint. And then one complaint, and the Pentagon jumps to attention, and it's fear. I'm going to tell you what's rooted in. It's rooted in fear. Fear is always doing what's best for itself without regard for others. And love does what's best for others without regard for itself. Mm. And it just blow. It's the most selfish thing I've ever seen in my life. And a lot of those dog tags we made, those guys still have them, guys and gals. Unfortunately, a lot of them are hanging around the necks of Gold Star family members mm. to remind them of the courage their only fam- their own family members had in battle. Why? Why would anyone ever be so selfish? I don't understand it. Uh, Mike, real quick, last word. Where does this go legally? They feared a lawsuit. That's why they said that they capitulated this complaint. It's right. First Liberty Institute. Well, we took them up on that. We filed a lawsuit. Go to firstliberty.org. You can see a copy of the lawsuit. And you can also find out how you can support Kenny. He's a patriotic American. He loves our troops. He loves our country. We need to get behind him and put a stop to this nonsense. So go to firstliberty.org and follow our lawsuit. We're going to win this. Okay. This seems like deja vu. Like we're stuck in Groundhog Day because this is just the latest in a long string of times where hundreds of people are doing something and appreciating something. And then one complaint comes up and the Department of Defense in this case capitulates to that one complaint. I think it's great that this man had this idea to make these dog tags with Christian messages. It was something that was born out of his own struggle, and he ended up using it to minister to so many troops because it was a direct response from the military itself 
to encourage these troops. And so it just grieves my heart to see that we are so far gone from the principles of liberty that we can't have encouraging scriptures on our dog tags because they might be offensive to the one person who doesn't like it. And and we've seen this over and over again, particularly in, in the area of having the Ten Commandments up in schools. You could have 200 students and 199 have no problem with it. One does and they take it down. And that just really bothers me and continues to surprise me, even though at this point it shouldn't. And so I say to this inspiring man, Godspeed to you, sir, and I hope that your legal battle goes well. I will be praying for you. The Bible tells us to put on the armor of God, and part of the armor of God is the Word of God. And so we need to be always ready uh, to combat the evil one with Scripture. That's what Jesus did by example for us in the desert. Uh, He quoted the Scriptures to the devil whenever the devil tried to make a point for following him. And finally, before we move on to our main segment, as I said uh, at the outset of this project, it's been very difficult to narrow down just 10 Christmas songs, and it seems like every day another Christmas song would come to mind as something that was special to me and something that I wanted to share with you. So before we get into our main list, I just wanted to share you a little bit of this song called His Favorite Christmas Story, and this is by a group called Capital Lights, and every Christmas I really enjoy this song. So take a listen to a little bit of His Favorite Christmas Story by Capital Lights. He met her up in Delaware in 1937 She was wearing red lipstick to match her pretty dress December 24th at a quarter to eleventh When he finally gained the courage to ask her to dance It was love at first sight The carolers sang as they danced through the night She was a small town girl, he was a traveling guy He never caught her name before they said their goodbyes A couple years later he was out on the road Having Christmas dinner in a diner alone When he saw a young waitress with a gleam in her eye Her favorite day of the year she showed her spirits were high She said, sir, can you shed a little hearty cheer? A simple Christmas story is all she wanted to hear He looked prepared with a smile as he started to say Here's my favorite Christmas story about a girl with no name He said, I met her So that is his favorite Christmas story by Capital Lights. And I got to say, I looked them up today and I didn't find a whole lot of music by them. Just a couple of 
albums and a few other songs, but this particular song, I feel like, hits it out of the park. I listened to it, I think, two and a half times, again, just this morning, because it's just the kind of song that has a powerful story, and if you listen to the whole song, you will really appreciate it, especially the ending. The ending ties it all together, and it's pretty amazing, so I'd encourage you to check out that song. All right, well, we are back to our list of Christmas songs, and I'm excited to share this with you. This first song that I want to share with you today is number five on the list, and it's called Strange Way to Save the World. This song was co-written with Mark Harris and Don Koch, and it was originally written for a Christmas project for the group For Him back in 1993. They said they were trying to think of a new way to tell the Christmas story and decided to try it from Joseph's perspective. And so they worked together. Uh, Mark Harris uh, worked on the lyrics and Don wrote the melody. After all these years, Don's original piano intro has become easily recognizable. And then I found this. It says, Down through the years, it has been fun to watch the diversity of artists who have recorded this song, from the original Phantom of the Opera, Michael Crawford, who recorded it as a duet with Twyla Paris, to R&B artist Fred Hammond, from Disney artist Jump 5, to Southern Gospel's Brian Free and Assurance. The only genre it had never landed in was the country music market. That finally happened in 2016 when Rascal Flatts included it on their first ever Christmas CD. And they actually sang this on CMA Country Christmas.
so that was number five on my list. Number four is called The Birthday of a King. And I really enjoy singing this song every year. I remember, for some reason, specifically uh, singing this every year at uh, Byron Center Baptist Church. Um, I may have heard someone sing it as a special there as well. Again, I'm not exactly sure why that sticks in my mind specifically, but I just really enjoy it. And here's what I found out about that song. It says, William Harold Neldiger wrote this text around 1890. It was published in a, a pamphlet by G. Schrimmer. There are two stanza, stanzas and a refrain. In each stanza is a contrast between the insignificance of Bethlehem and the importance of the Christ child who is born there. The refrain is a burst of joy over the spectacular picture of a host of angels, a fitting welcome for a king. And so I've just really resonated with this song, and I found out that this song first became widely popular when Judy Garland recorded it in 1941. In the King as sung by Judy Garland. And so I thought that was fun and I wanted to give you a chance to hear that. And I enjoyed it, so I hope that it blessed you. Brad Paisley makes his second appearance on this list as an honorable mention with his song Born on Christmas Day. Now, what's exciting for me about this is I remember listening to the album when it first came out in 2006, and I've always liked Brad. He usually has a hymn on every album that he does. He seems to be a strong believer, and he puts that forth in his music. But what was exciting about this particular track is that it starts out with him as a 13-year-old boy singing in Jamboree USA, a song that he himself wrote. And I think it's very powerful. So here is a little clip of Born on Christmas Day. This is a Christmas song that I wrote. It's called Born on Christmas Day. (laughs) 
was a cold and dark December night, but a star still lit the sky. Away in a manger, you heard a baby cry. It was the cry of the Son of God, a little baby boy. Christmas Day. And I just really appreciate his heart as he sang that song. And again, if you listen to the whole song, you will really enjoy the ending of the track. That's all I'm going to say. And we will move on to our next selection. One of my favorite Christmas movies, as I outlined last year, is the Christmas movie White Christmas. And there's a song on that movie that I did not originally realize was from that movie called Count Your Blessings Instead of Sheep. It's sung by Bing Crosby and Rosemary Clooney um, as a part of this film. And I really resonated with this song because it was on a collection that my father had called Reader's Digest Christmas Through the Years. Um, To this day, it's one of my favorite Christmas collections of all time. It's very hard to find these days. When I'm worried and I can't sleep I count my blessings instead of sheep I fall asleep counting my blessings When my bankroll is getting small I think of when I had none at all and I fall asleep counting my blessings I think about a nursery and I picture curly heads and one by one I count them as they slumber in their beds If you're worried and you can't sleep Just count your blessings instead of sheep And you'll fall asleep Counting your blessings So that is my second honorable mention of the day. Count your blessings instead of sheep. Again, I think you will enjoy that as well as the entire film of White Christmas. I have yet to watch it this year, but I definitely need to do that because it remains near the top of my list. 
All right, getting back to our numbered selections, we have a little town of Bethlehem coming in at number three. And I think the reason this one resonates with me so much is because I remember singing it in so many children's programs growing up. Um, it's very simple um, and and very straightforward, but it's just so powerful as well. And sometimes we just need to stop and think about the lyrics uh, that we are are listening to and let it just wash over us. And so that would be my prayer as we listen to a little bit of O Little Town of Bethlehem here on the Speaking for Him podcast, Christmas Songs Top Ten. by the author Phillips Brooks going to Bethlehem and realizing um, its beauty and contemplating the emotions and the thoughts of the shepherds as they went to find the baby Jesus in Bethlehem. Uh, He was born in 1825 and was a beloved and respected evangelist, and he served several evangelical churches in Philadelphia and Boston and was appointed bishop of that area. He stood six foot eight inches and he had a big heart that endured him to young and old alike. There were toys in his office for the many children who visited him. It was a familiar sight to see the beloved bishop sitting on the floor playing a game with a group of children. And uh, then we find out that he... uh, after going on this Holy Land trip, he said, I need to write about it. So he wrote O Little Town of Bethlehem. And in a 1999 Atlantic article, Poet Laureate Robert Pinsky explained the hymn's significance in the aftermath of the American Civil War, which ended in 1865, the same year Brooks visited Bethlehem. What gives these lines their mysterious charge is buried memories. Brooks, best known for his famous sermon on the Civil War dead, wrote his Christmas carol when, after the war, many little towns of the North and South were unnaturally silent because so many of the young men were gone. The hopes and fears of all the years involved the Republic itself, and in that context, the town's deep and dreamless sleep beneath the silent stars is the more unsettling precisely because it is dreamless and therefore death-like. And so I hope you enjoyed that rendition of A Little Town of Bethlehem, and that was number three on my list. We are going now to number two, which is Mary Did You Know. Uh, This 
was penned by Mark Lowry, and he wrote it in 1984. The music was by Buddy Green, because if you didn't know, Mark Lowry does not read music. When he was with the Gaither Vocal Band, he would listen to cassette tapes where another member of the band would do his baritone part so that he could memorize it by ear and then participate. But he did not read music, and so Buddy Green wrote the music after Mark Lowry wrote the words. And at one point, this song reached number six on the CCM charts. This song has been covered multiple times, many multiple times, and is a seasonal favorite of not just me, but many other people around the world. And it was the basis of a stage musical by David Guthrie and Bruce Greer, also titled Mary Did You Know, which won the 1999 Gospel Music Devil Award for Musical of the Year. And I looked this up, and it's more like a cantata than in a conventional musical, but still very interesting nonetheless. Mary, did you know that your baby boy will one day walk on water? Mary, did you know that your baby boy will save our sons and daughters? Did you know that your baby boy has come to make you new? This child that you delivered will soon deliver you. And as I said, it's been covered multiple times, but nobody sings it quite like Mark Lowry. I think because the heart that he uh, exuded as he was writing the poem comes through in his singing of it. So I think it really is something to appreciate, and I hope that that encourages you this Christmas season. Well, we're almost to our number one choice, but I have a couple more honorable mentions that I want to share with you first. And and this next one is simply a fun song. I call it my favorite fun song for Christmas of all time. And it's I Want a Hippopotamus for Christmas by that was sung by Gayla Peavy. And she sung this, I believe, back in the 1940s. She was eight years old. And a fun fact, I was when I was researching this episode, I saw a video interview with her from a few years back where the San Diego Zoo was raising money for a new hippopotamus for the zoo. And so they framed it as getting Gayla Peavy a hippopotamus for Christmas. And when they had enough money uh, to get this hippopotamus, they had a ceremony where they brought her to the zoo and presented her with a hippopotamus for Christmas. So I just thought that was a fun story related to I Want a Hippopotamus for Christmas. And here's a little sample of Gayla Peavy singing that fun Christmas tune. <laughs> I 
Again, that is Gala Peavy with another honorable mention on our top 10 list of some of my favorite Christmas songs of all time. I really have appreciated you listening, and I hope that you will give me feedback. What are your favorite Christmas songs? I really want to know how you resonate with this list and what I what you think I may have missed as I put this together. As I said, I could probably put together, you know, many more lists and still not be complete because there's so many great songs out there. Well, before I get to my number one selection, I do have one more honorable mention and this comes from Josh Turner. It's a brand new single off his new Christmas album and it is simply called King Size Manger. And this is one of those songs that I had basically already put my list together and then I heard this song and I'm like I have to share this with my listeners and so I hope that you will enjoy uh, Josh Turner in this clip of King Size Manger say that I have an immense respect for Josh Turner uh, because number one he puts his family first and he travels with them or not at all so he probably travels 
less than a lot of country stars, uh, but he gets the job done, and I really appreciate that about him. And then the other thing is that his Christian faith is so important to him that he doesn't sing any songs about drinking. And that is very unique, even among some of the more devout Christians in country music will have some kind of drinking song on their records. So I I feel like Josh has made some real sacrifices to have that be uh, the reputation that he has, but I really appreciate that about him. And he, he said in an article that I read that he did not want to be known as a Christian singer he simply is a Christian who sings. Um, but it really comes out clearly in his songs. So I really appreciated that. Well, we have come to the time when I will share with you my number one song for best Christmas song of all time. And I said to you last week that in some ways the numbers don't matter because there's so many good songs out there. But I will say on this one, the number matters. This is by far my favorite Christmas song, and it is O Holy Night, and no one sings it better than John Barry. information before on the podcast because the first year that I did the podcast way back in 2012 I had my friend Ivor come on and sing this song for you in studio and so I shared with you at that time that the author of this hymn was not a Christian according to the book stories of best love Christmas songs the original text of O Holy Night was written in 1847 by a French poet named Placide Sepeu. After being approached by the local priest, Sepeu 
was commissioned to write a poem in celebration of the church's new organ. The priest's request may have come as a surprise for Sipay, who was not considered a godly man, but he obliged. Pondering the Gospel of Luke, Sipay wrote Minuet Crutins, or Midnight Christians, as he imagined what it would have been like to witness Christ's birth. Sipay then approached his good friend and composer, a Jewish man named Adolf Charles Adams, to put words to music. Three weeks later, Cantique de Noel, O Holy Night, premiered at a midnight mass and became a firm favorite amongst French congregations. In 1855, American writer John Sullivan Dwight discovered the song and was inspired by the powerful lyrics about Christ's victory over the oppression of sin and the brotherhood of men under God. Dwight rejigged the lyrics slightly to, to read, Truly he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. Chain shall he break, for the slave is our brother, and in his name all oppression shall cease. O Holy Night was published in his magazine, Dwight's Journal of Music, and quickly gained popularity with American audiences, especially in the North during the Civil War. So, that was really interesting. And then Reginald Fesden, who was a Canadian inventor, claimed to have made the first ever transmission of voice and music and that it was a reading from the Gospel of Luke and also a live rendition of O Holy Night. And so that is very interesting, along with Handel's Largo, those three things. Uh, there's some dispute as to whether that is an accurate report, but that is his claim. So I hope that you've enjoyed uh, this broadcast where I have been able to talk about some of my favorite Christmas songs. This was a, a delight, although it was a challenge. And so I hope that you will share it with your family and friends. I hope that if you have your own favorites that you will share with me uh, what they are and give me a little bit of background on how much they meant to you or why they meant so much to you. And I would really appreciate the ability to use that information on a future podcast. Um, but that's about all I have to share with you today. I hope that you will have a great Christmas and that you will, as always keep serving the best of masters. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Your host has been Andrew Gomison, founder of Speaking for Him. For more information on today's show and to leave us comments and voicemails, visit speakingforhim.blogspot.com. You can find Andrew's ministry at speakingforhim.com. That's speaking, the number four, H-I-M. You can also interact with us at facebook.com slash speakingforhim and on Twitter at Speaking for Him. And when you look for us on iTunes and Stitcher, let us know what you think of the podcast by leaving a rating and review. 